Welcome to Light Your Leadership Talks, or LIL Talks. Every week, we bring you informal chats with leaders and leadership experts from around the globe. Your host is Lisa Anna Palmer, author of the international best-selling book, Light a Fire in Their Hearts, The Truth About Leadership. Listen in so that you too can stay informed about the latest wise practices that set great leaders apart. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Lisa Anna Palmer, author of Light of Fire in Their Hearts, The Truth About Leadership, and creator of Light Your Leadership Talks, or Lil Talks for short. Today, I'm honored to feature a guest panel comprised of amazing and inspiring women who are all renowned community and business leaders, including as leaders in black communities, as well as communities who welcome newcomers to Canada. And I will introduce each and every one of you in a moment. So I'm so honored and so grateful that, that you're here. Uh, in the next two hours, we will explore how allies can show up in respectful ways to combat anti-black racism in a way that is meaningful and honors black lives because black lives matter. We will discuss topics such as white privilege, white fragility, microaggressions, and how we can stand together and walk the talk on inclusion. Given that I'm here as a student and a learner today, my role will be to introduce the panelists and ask questions that I've heard many people ask in the weeks following the George Floyd murder and ensuing Black Lives Matters marches all around the world. It turns out that there are many people who want to be allies. However, we are, we are sometimes afraid to make mistakes. We are awkward. And unfortunately, sometimes we hold back. So I want to address, you know, white people, we can no longer sit in silence while our black brothers and sisters take this on, on their own. We need to stand shoulder to shoulder and fight racism together. Racism is not right and we need to step up, understand and use our privilege to help dismantle it and in every way we can. In short, we need to get over ourselves, get out of our comfort zone, get informed and walk the talk. Once I ask the questions, I will turn it over to Magdalene, who has joined us as facilitator and moderator, and I will defer to the women on the panel who are leaders with lived experiences as Black women. So before we jump into the panel discussion, um, I'd like to really invite you, if you're called to make a donation this week, please see the links on the event poster that supports a range of causes and nonprofits in the Black community. I'm going to send out a follow-up email with all the links so that you can take a look and see if you can make a donation. I'm just going to quickly mention what they are. There's uh, one link. It's a GoFundMe for Justice for Nutwali. Um, so he's a young Black man who was wrongfully accused by a white woman here in the Ottawa area. I think it was recently, right, Yvette? Yeah, it was just this past week. Um, there's also going to be a link for Black Lives Matter Canada, uh, one for Black Lives Matter in the US, a link for 19 organizations supporting Black Canadians. So there's a whole list in there and you can decide which one you'd like to support, as well as a link for support, support Black Charities. So that's the name of the, um, of the site, Support Black Charities. So I will include these in a follow-up email. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our amazing and inspiring panelists whom I love and admire each and every one of them. Uh, and I'm so honored and grateful that they've agreed to take the time to help us learn and deepen our insights about this very important topic. So first up is Yvette Yashiri. Hi, Yvette. 
Uh, you'll have to mute Hi. yourself. Yes. Yes. So, Hi, Lisa. Hi. So uh, one of the things I forgot to mention is everybody, if you'd like to put it on speaker view, so that way we can see the panelists as they speak. And then afterwards, at the end, when we're done, we'll open it up to everyone. Okay, so welcome Yvette. Uh, you, have may see, you have may have seen Yvette on TV as she is the producer and host of a TV show called Identité Culturelle. She is Executive Vice President of the Junior Chamber International Canada, President of Women and Children Future of the World, General Secretary of, Afri of the African Canadian Association of Ottawa, and Vice President of the Congolese Community Canada, Ottawa Gatineau. I'm not done yet. <laughs> Yvette is a proud mother of two. She is a community leader who is passionate about equity, equality, social justice, work, family, and positive change. She works to improve human conditions and community development. This includes family security, education, promoting youth leadership, women's and girls empowerment, equality in healthcare, access to public services, and society without violence. She's been recognized for all her hard work and dedication and received the following recognitions. Ottawa Distinguished Women, 100 Accomplished Black Canadians, Women Leader of Ottawa Vanier, and the Diamond Award from Regroupement des Affaires Femmes, Newcomer of the Year from Bernard Grandmaitre, and she is a welcoming Ottawa Week ambassador and is also featured on a poster. And I saw that poster. That's pretty awesome. As a heroic figure in the legacy poster. In addition, uh, she's part of the No Peace Until Justice organization, and she and her fellow leaders have made history in Canada. They were the ones who organized the uh, June 5th, 2020 peaceful march in the national capital. So I, you know, hats off. I, I watched your video, Yvette, and I, I had goosebumps. I was so inspired. And not only that, so she's... <laughs> Like, just to add to this, Yvette has the awesome intention to run for city councillor for Ward 19 in Cumberland. So if anybody lives in Cumberland, you know, get out and vote. I wish I lived in Cumberland. I live, uh, like, across the street, and I'm considering <laughs> moving to Cumberland so I can vote for Yvette. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for having me and... Uh, you are just a wonderful, a, a wonderful person to uh, to know. And uh, as I always tell you, when I speak with you, you are a blessing in this world. You are a blessing to me and um, a big sister. And I just don't have words. Uh, the the love that uh, you know that come out from you whenever we speak and in everything that you do, the leader that you are. Uh, I just say thank you. Uh -huh. Thank you for. Uh, creating this space for us to discuss about this uh, important topic. Oh, my honor. Love you, Yvette. Thank you. Love you too. Thank you for that. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, next is Glodine Champion. So Glodine spreads love in all she does. So let's see if we can put a spotlight on Glodine there, Nat. Let's see, where's Glodine? I'm here. There she is, Glodine. So Glodine is a business transformation leader at Champion Consulting. She is a facilitator, speaker, business process expert, and she specializes in communication and accountability. She cultivates courage, builds confidence with love, servant leadership, and a lot of humor and fun. She is like, she's even taken up surfing this week. <laughs> 
which is a hint that you don't live in Ottawa. So <laughs> Glodine is from Monterey, California. She is a Six Sigma black belt. And, uh, you know, I, I know people who are in agility. That's, that's like, that's hard to get. Six Sigma black belt. That's amazing. With a master's of fine arts in writing from California College of the Arts and over 30 years of business experience, including 10 plus years as an adjunct professor. You must have been such a fun professor, Glody. I was. <laughs> I want to sign up for your course. When she's not working to transform the business world, she's also a published short story writer and essayist, currently seeking agents to publish her first novel, Salmon Croquettes. When, do you have any idea when that's coming out? Well, oh, I'm, I'm shopping around for agents. Okay. So. All right. So if anybody knows an agent out there, Glody. I'm self-publishing. I need it out in the world. All right. So you let us know. We'll, we'll share it out. She lives on Del Monte Beach in Monterey, California, and can be found most mornings walking her adorable Tibetan terrier, Tashi. Tashi is so cute. I got to meet her. As she's so adorable. Uh, so you live along the shoreline, which is awesome, or close to it, giving gratitude for the beauty of her expansive backyard. I saw Glodine speak in San Diego, and she just blew me away with her energy and her light, and I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed. And uh, Glodine, we hope you come to speak in Canada one day. You know, if there's anything we could do, get you up here. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for joining the panel today, Godine. Yay. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, also joining us on the panel, if we could put the spotlight, please, on Kareen Aristide. Yes. I told you. Hey, Tashi. <laughs> here, I'll put the spotlight on Kareen. There you are. So Kareen Aristide is the founder of the She Did It movement. So if you, if you haven't heard about it, now you're hearing about it, sign up for it. It's for women. And we could all say, you know, she did it, we did it. Um, it's important movement. And she helps women entrepreneurs connect and grow both personally and professionally. She produces and hosts a web series, a talk show, networking events, and a mastermind groups. Uh, Kareen is a proud mother of five. Wow. Wow. Combines over 20 years of professional experience in employment counseling, entrepreneurship, and pastoral care. She is co-owner of L'Espace PME in the Uruwa region, which is near Ottawa, an innovative collaborative space where parentpreneurs and their families come together to work and to grow. So Kareen is a community leader. She has a heart of gold uh, who played important roles at Big Brothers and Big Sisters in Ottawa, as well as advocating for women's rights and being emergency responder for survivors of sexual assaults. Her personal experience with depression and burnout have inspired Kareen to educate and help others to take charge of their mental health. Even with all she does for the community, Kareen is completing a BA in honors in psychology with a minor in neuroscience and mental health. She's a certified human behavior consultant with personality insights and a certified expert speaker. She is fantastic. And thank you for participating in the panel today, Kareen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lisa. I love you. You know that already. You are awesome. You're like a twin, you know, <laughs> like my twin. So we met, uh, there was a, such a beautiful connection and uh, I'm very honored to be part of this panel of such distinguished other guests. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to have fun and to conversate about this uh, important topic. So thank you. It's such an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Next, so let's uh, put the.
spotlight on Magdalene. Magdalene, hey, Magdalene, how are you? I'm wonderful, Lisa. I was just kissing a bee from my room. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so there's a bee in your room, is there? <laughs> okay, well, we'll keep an eye on that. If you need to, uh, you know, take cover, let us know. <laughs> uh, that's because you have so many flowers around you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> bring them inside with you. you. Bring your garden inside. So next, it is my honor to present the very inspiring Magdalene Kuman, who's a longtime friend and who will be co-facilitator and moderator for today's event. Magdalene is the Director of Employer Engagement at WorldSkills Employment, and a lot of your team have shown up today. You're just an amazing leader, and that it shows in everything you do. She's uh, currently leading the Empowering Visible Minority Newcomer Women Initiative, an amazing initiative that's having wonderful results with inspiring women who are coming to Canada from all, all over the world. She leads her team to prepare new Canadians to succeed in the Canadian labor market and to work with employers to facilitate their hiring. So in recognition of her leadership, Magdalene was awarded the So Well Deserved Community Pillar Award by Ottawa Distinguished Women in 2020 and received a Community Leaders Award by Immigrant Women's Services in 2009. You may have seen Magdalene's work in over a dozen countries as she is the author and publisher of Mag's Magazine, which is designed to inspire others to live their sole missions. Everything you do inspires people, Magdalene. She is host of Mag's Morning Inspiration on Facebook Live, which I try to catch as often as possible. So it's 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, if, if you have a chance in the mornings. Um, she does this daily to help deposit some positive energy in the universe and, and all over the world. Um, and she is the owner and founder of Mag's uh, Management and Consulting Incorporated. And there she provides training, facilitation, and inspirational leadership services. I've actually had the honor of being uh, one of the participants and one of the, the uh, members of her latest uh, leg leadership legacy uh, workshops, which is amazing. Really made me think a lot. Uh, Magdalene advocates for living fully from the soul, both in her career and her personal life. Her focus is on helping others to improve their quality of life and or meet their goals by tuning in and stepping up. You say that a lot. I love it when you say that. You got to tune in and you got to step up. Uh, please join me in welcoming Magdalene. Thank you, Magdalene. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for asking me to be on the panel. It's a pleasure. I always say that if I had to create a sister, it would be exactly you. Aww. You've been a sister, a friend, a mentor, and I'm grateful for the opportunity of bringing us together and having this conversation. It's an important conversation to have. So thank you. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. And uh, Dominique Denneray sends her regrets at the, she called me last night and she says that she's so sorry, something came up at the last minute that she had to attend to. So the good news is though, for, for people who, who like to tune into Little Talks, Dominique and I will be having a session uh, either in August or September and the date is to be confirmed. Okay, so welcome all the panelists. Welcome. Now we're going to talk about the questions. We're gonna get into the questions. And uh, as I mentioned, Magdalene, I'll, I'll be posing the questions and then Magdalene will help to uh, moderate uh, the conversation. And uh, what I recommend is that everybody use the speaker view. So if you look to the top of your screen on your computer, so if you took, if you, if you look to the stop, top, sorry, top of your screen of your computer, you'll be able to see gallery view or speakers view. So for the panel, I really recommend you use uh, speakers view. 
And then once we open up the floor to everybody, probably in the last half hour or so, uh, then we could put it on, on uh, you know, the, the gallery view. Okay, so let's begin. So the first question is, what is the difference between Black and African American and African Canadian? So what's the difference between the different terms Black and also African American or African Canadian? So uh, I'm going to jump in here real quick just to say um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a personal preference, I believe, within um, Americans, I guess. Um, for me, because I took a trip to Ghana, and everyone in Ghana referred to me as a Black American. I was like, well, I can't, I'm not really an African American because I don't have, I do have a connection, but you know, I don't have family to go home to there. So I figured since the people from the place where I originated considered me a Black American and I like to be called Black, then I'm a Black American. Mm. Mm. Um, I would like to jump in as well. You can hear me? Yes. Yes. Uh, to me, I would say that um, there is no difference, really, in the sense that um, black, black or African American, African Canadian, we are all blacks. Uh, it really um, the difference maybe uh, I would say will depend from uh, the 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 country you know uh, because of colonization. It will depends on. Um, the country, the person uh, that colonized, you know, if we're talking here about America, we know that, um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, blacks, blacks, uh, blacks force were taken from, from uh, Africa or Caribbean, uh, the Caribbean. It, it, it really depends on that, uh, that, but we are all blacks. So to me, there's no difference. And, um, it's Glodine, as she said it, she, she's a black American, even she's, she's an America, just as I'm a black uh, African Canadian, but I could also be a black African American. Um, I would, I mean, you know what, I think I agree with Yvette in the sense that it's a personal pr preference, I guess. Um, but I kind of have a different slant on it in the sense that for me, Black is a social construct um, because when you say African-American or African-Canadian, you're talking ethnicity. You're talking maybe a certain part of the world. You're talking more um, on a personal level. And so the, the concept of black and white to me, um, it's we, society has basically created these categories and we choose to identify with them or not. That's kind of how I see it, because even in the, under the black umbrella, there's so many ethnicities. And so it's, uh, it's, it's really uh, a, a sense of, okay, do I identify myself with that social construct or not? That's kind of the way I, I would see it. Mm. I'd like to make a little contribution here to the dialogue. Um, when we look at the difference between Black and African-American, African-Canadians. So first of all, I want to acknowledge that Canada has been home to Black Canadians from Africa, Europe, the Caribbean, the United States of America, 
since the 17th century, and that data is coming from Black History in Canada in 2020. So the terms Black Canadian, African Canadian, or African American apply only to those who have come from African countries. However, Black Canadian can come from many countries, including African countries. Black Canadian, um, from this research, is a more appropriate term to address Black persons living in Canada, especially when one is not certain about the country of origin. So if I might ask the panel, um, and, and a follow-up question to this is, in your own experience, what do you think is the discrepancy between how people want to be addressed? Do I say someone is a Black African, a Black um, Canadian? And if you are not sure and you simply said you're Black Canadian, would that be offensive or not? Like... <laughs> I'm not laughing at I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at an experience. Okay, go ahead. Um, so that's why I said I believe it's a it's a preference because um, when you put something in front of American to me, it means you're marginalizing the American part of who you are. Right? I was born in this country. All I know is America as far as where my roots are. But like I said, my trip to Africa made me realize that in this country there are all types of Africans that currently live in America, which like Charlize Theron is South African. I don't know that she's necessarily American, but if she was American, she would be African, literally she would be African American. But I think part of the problem that we have right now is, is we have all these different labels for blackness, right? But you can tell we're black just by looking at us. Like I think it would be a lot harder to say whether a white person is from Europe or Switzerland or something like that. Those would be the conversations I would want to have. But to like try to distinguish where I am in my blackness, I'm black, I live in America. Or, you know, I'm black and I live in Canada or whatever. Because it's clear, this makes it obvious. I I'm not trying to be funny. I just feel like that's one of, that's one of the conversations I'd like to see go away because it doesn't move us forward, right? Um, trying to Trying to put us in a, pigeonhole. Like I hate when I'm filling out a, an application and then I'm either um, black and, you know, they have all the different distinctions of um, culture. I call it culture because I don't know, you've probably seen that t-shirt. There was a t-shirt I saw once that said, there's uh, no such thing as race. There's only one race, the human race, and everything else is culture, right? But why do we need to be distinguished by our culture? What difference does it make? Exactly. I will jump to that as well. Um, uh, the the the, the, lab, the labeling thing is really something that uh, that bothers me uh, because uh, just as uh, Claudine she mentioned, uh, when you're black, you, you can see anybody that can see that you are black. And uh, I don't find the necessity of asking. I mean, just putting okay, you're black from. Canada or America, etc. Um, it's really uh, just trying to, you know, categorize and again, put into, into boxes. Um, I understand we need statistics, we need uh, data and etc. but we must find a better way just to unite everybody to, 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 uh, to break those barriers of racism because uh, what racism does is really about 
we all know that um, racism is uh, is prejudice, discrimination uh, uh, directed a person uh, on basis of uh, of the race or ethnicity group. So to me. Um, just that it's part of it's part of the problem. Uh, I, I think that we are all born free and equal, and uh, there's no necessity for me to uh, to address that these people they are black, these people they are white. It's because the reality: who are the people of color? We are all people of color. I mean, even white is a color. So. Um, it's really something that we have to think about and uh, maybe address differently. Okay, so maybe I can um, come back into the conversation again. Oh, sorry, I was muted. So my own experience um, coming into Canada was a strange thing because I come from an island where everybody is kind of the same color. I had never seen or had to be addressed in any of those before I came to Canada. And actually, it was with Dominique Denry, who's not here. I got, I got my first work job working with visible minorities in the government. And that too was another strange expression that I had never heard of before. And I found myself asking myself, so what am I? Am I black? Am I a visible minority? And um, the other confusing part of it was that I am of Indian origin, and yet I connect to the Black community. And I was never sure exactly how to address my own self in this. Today, I feel more um, resolute and more aligned with the terminology Black Canadian, because regardless of what part of the world we come from, you, you're Black Canadian. The forms that Yvette you spoke about, I have found those forms very confusing over the years, <laughs> trying to um, put me in a box. But yes, I know that being able to identify black is important because of all the issues that are, that are happening now, being able to kind of zero in on it. And maybe Lisa, that could take us to um, the next question that helps us understand a little bit more about all the, the, the bigger spectrum of why we are going into all the Black Lives Matter, because there are very important aspects historically and currently that I don't think can be ignored, that we need to have that conversation around. And like other panelists have said, I also believe in the preference of things, like how would I be preferred to be called? Because that in itself has a direct reference to a particular individual. Okay, so Lisa, maybe we can move to the next question yep. to shed some more light. Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for, for your responses. And um, this brings us to our next question, which is, what is white privilege? Um, many of us have heard the term, but don't fully comprehend. And uh, this would be a, a wonderful opportunity to, to try to understand that better. What is white privilege? Thank you. Um, I can jump on, uh, on that. So, White privilege, um, it's, it's the advantage 
the advantages that a white person have uh, over any type of uh, things in a society. I would say advantages in uh, in in works in the workplace, advantages uh, at um, at the health level, advantages at the education level, and etc. Just because they are white. By uh, if I have to give an example, uh, for example, if a white person goes. To, uh, I was discussing with my my, my, my husband uh, lately, and we were talking about credit. Uh, if a, a white person, for example, goes to uh, to a bank and they're gonna request for a, a credit, you know, just a, a, any kind type of credit, uh, there won't be the same uh, type of questions that that, that will be uh, asked to them. Uh, there won't be any uh, suspicion or stuff uh, or anything like that. Whereas that when it comes to a black person, um, there's going to be, you know, uh, so many questions or, or a suspicion or uh, it's just the fact that each time the, the, the black person will have to um, be regarded like uh, more before being given the same uh, the same thing like that he deserve, that the person deserves because he's, he's a human being. Uh, it's really... It's really about uh, a system of advantage uh, based on the race. That's really uh, what white privilege is to me. And it's also a system of oppression, uh, uh, you know, based on, on, uh, on, on the race. And uh, that's what I would, I would say for now when it comes mm. to white uh, privilege. I just want to piggyback on that. Um, <clears throat> what I find interesting about white privilege in America is how it came to be because blacks in this country are, are seen by our ancestry, right? So our ancestors were enslaved. And so thereby, and, you know, the constitution says we were three fifths a human being, which still doesn't make sense to me. Um, but white privilege existed at the expense of black bodies back then. And I think that's also why Black Lives Matter is such a huge thing because black lives in comparison to other lives are not valued in the same way that specifically as white lives are. Um, and <laughs> I was laughing when Yvette said the, um, the bank. So I had another situation there was a thing called restrictive covenants back in the early 20s and 30s. It still exists today. The uh, New York Times did an article not too long ago about um, in real estate how white privilege exists in the, in the, from the standpoint that certain white communities want to remain white. And it doesn't matter how much money a Black person has. The assumption is they don't have enough money to afford this community. And so the real estate agents, not all, but there's a number of real estate agents that were showing um, Black families or Black people that were interested in buying homes in certain areas, they were making assumptions that they couldn't afford that area and showing them less, affor less affordable areas that were actually just because white people don't want Black people in this community, right? Which is, which is, kind of how it works across the board. So not just in credit, but in renting and getting a job. And I think to myself, white privilege exists, even though, even though white privilege, privilege exists, it exists, like I said, to the extent that it doesn't allow for others to um, have the same access. 
Okay, then that reminds me of a conversation that I had uh, many years ago in Canada as a newcomer. I went to the bank to ask for a checkbook and the cashier said to me, um, he said, you can have the one, he gave me the lowest quality checkbook. And I said to him, what are my other options? And his response were, I don't think you want to afford those for you. And yes, and I was trying to purchase a checkbook with my own money in the bank, which is a, a commercial institute that where my bank account was. And I was being told that I needed to take the, the, the lowest level quality checkbook. Right. And that conversation, I was so new to Canada at the time. I didn't even understand the conversation. Um, that, Glodin, your point reminded me of that. But um, Lisa, for the sake of our discussion here, I want to get to a formal definition of white privilege, um, which was done by um, Greenberg in 2017. And I'm trying to go with formal definitions just to kind of get us on the, kind of an equal footing with some of this. Or I don't know, another, another option. So he defines um, white privilege as the reality that a white person's whiteness has come and continues to come with an array of benefits and advantages not shared by people of color. And it doesn't mean that you don't suffer or face struggles, but they're not based on the color of your skin. So some examples of white privilege are learning about your race in school, right? So in schools, one of the issues that have come up quite a lot with um, the newcomer population, the black community, is how much of our black history is taught in school. We learn about the, the history of white people. Finding more products that represent your race, such as books, cosmetics, etc. Consuming media that's biased towards your race. The ability to think racism is dead because you're not directly impacted by it. Not needing to make calculated decisions based on your risk, uh, based on your skin. So, for example, what you wear, how you speak, where you go, what time of the day you do certain things, example, not jogging might be an example considered suspicious. Um, jogging at night might be considered suspicious. I mean, there are more things about white privilege, not worrying about a police encounter because of the color of your skin, not worrying about a violent, angry, and negative stereotype associated with your race, not worrying about people you be potentially being racist. So white privilege, it's really, it's an advantage that a person who is white has only because of the color of the skin, things they don't have to worry about. Whereas other people have those things to worry about specifically because of the color of the skin. Another example I'll give you right here in Ottawa, a few years ago um, when I bought my first brand new car and my, son's, my son, my first son was old enough to drive it and he had his license. That kid got stopped almost every night he drove my car. And it was on the basis that he was a black boy who was driving a new car. And if it was a white boy of the same age who was driving a new car, he would not have been stopped. 
So it is um, really based on the advantages one has because of the skin color. And I'm sure other panelists can share other examples of how that manifests. Anybody wants to go more for that uh, to um, Christine? Um, yeah, so I think one of the things that um, makes it difficult sometimes for uh, white people to understand these realities is because they've never lived it. Yeah. And so for, for them, it, it's, it seems very in, impossible for people to actually behave this way. But there is like a background to it. So we're talking years and years of segregation, of uh, slavery, of colonialism, of bigotry, like there's, there's a, there's a whole baggage to it. Um, so if you're born in a generation that was not responsible for those acts, you are still born in, in the aftermath or the consequences of those acts. And so living as a black person or person of color under the consequences of those actions um, makes it that you're living these experiences on a day-to-day -day basis. And so there are people that are still alive, you know, <laughs> that were contributing to these things and it goes generation to generation. And so you will have, you may not have the Ku Klux Klan um, wearing masks, but you may have descendants of the Ku Klux Klan as police officers. And so those mindsets, those those they were bred in this mindset and so they will perpetuate what they were taught you know and the media then comes and puts so much more uh i guess light to those things or lights the fire of those things which makes it that from generation to generation we keep um living these atrocities and so it'll take a generation that says no, <laughs> that takes a stand and um, it'll have to be people of white privilege that decide to take a stand so that the privilege can be a voice for the oppressed. So a, that's a really interesting point. And that leads me to another question that I want to ask um, the panelists. So. Let us take a look at this current generation, looking at millennials. And I have been observing the multiculturalism in Canada for the last um, couple of decades. Would you say that our millennials are growing up understanding um, that there is such a thing called white privilege? Or is that kind of more connected to past generations? Anybody can go for it. I, I don't live in Canada, but I, I wanted to respond to the, the previous question because there's one additional piece to this. Mm -hmm. is Understanding white privilege is, is one thing, but understanding that, that um, helping give voice to, to black, black bodies in this space doesn't mean that something's being taken away. Because when you say someone has privilege, if you open up that privilege to everyone, then that means I'm being, something's being taken away from me. And I think that's why a lot of people 
a lot of times why this conversation starts and then stalls at some point because people are afraid that they're gonna lose something. So I just wanna make sure that I say that even in the understanding of white privilege, it, it also has to be that understanding that you're not gonna lose anything by understanding and accepting and then supporting uh, or working toward ending racism. <clears throat> and then I'm gonna say for the millennial question, I know that in the United States, from my, this is just my um, perception, I think they're over it. Like anybody that's 30 years old and, and younger, they're over it. They think we're crazy. Like, why are you guys still arguing and fighting? They have friends of all different cultures. They get along fine. You know, they don't see, they don't see it the same way we see it because they don't experience it the same way. So that leads in, in another question, who is experiencing it? Is, um, is it more of a certain population of people, of a certain age group that experience, that's experiencing this? You mean as far as the millennials uh, or the, older? Um, the, the outcomes of white privilege. So I will, uh, who, so I, when I say that, I mean that I get the impression that white kids are over it. I mean, black, if you're black, you're still going to have to deal with being black. But in the space of white privilege, I feel like 30-year-olds and younger, unless they've been taught otherwise. And I remember I asked a white person once when I was in the, in the Navy, my master, I was RCPO in charge of my company. The master at arms was from Kentucky. And I'd never been called the N-word in my life, ever. And so um, we're supposed to be partners. And I asked her, like, why, why would you even do that? I thought we, you know, I thought we were becoming friends. You know, we work together like this. And she couldn't tell me why she didn't like, she couldn't tell me why she didn't like me, which let me know that she was taught to just not like Black people. And because I was now in a position of power over her, even though she was the second in command, it was problematic. So for so I'm in my 50s. So I think that it's more prevalent in, like I said, 30 and up, and and maybe a smaller portion in the 30 and below. I just feel like that conversation is changing because the opportunities available to all of us are changing. Although I will thank Donald Trump for unearthing the scourge of the earth, because now everyone knows it's not a post-racial anything. We're still very much mired in racism. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's also the aspect of where you live and, you know, what the community is like where you are. Because uh, I can remember we moved to a predominantly white community when my kids were younger and um, I homeschooled for most of their young lives. And so when I decided to put them in school, they were the only black children in the school. And they've never seen that before because we were always in communities where it was very mixed. And, and so the discrimination that they experienced was really uh, according to that particular area. I think that when people are not exposed to other cultures and other ways of doing things, um, they will revert to whatever they are taught um, with their parents. So their parents being of older generations, they can, you can only 
give what you've received. And so there's that perpetuation, um, depending on where we are in the world, I think we will live it more at whatever age than maybe other places in the world where there's more diversity. Mm-hmm. And Christine, I want to go back to that definition of white privilege, because I think it's really important for us to keep that in mind. It has everything to do simply with the color of a skin. So white privilege, I'm going to repeat here, it's the reality that a white person's whiteness has come and continues to come with an array of benefits and advantages not shared by many people of color. It does not mean that you don't suffer or face struggles, but they are not based on the color of your skin. Now, somebody in the chat board has just asked the question, what is white? What are we talking about when we're referring to white? (laughs) Somebody like (laughs) what is white? What is white? Honestly, um, to me, I don't see people by color. I don't see people by color. I see just the person that I have in front of me. Uh, I don't see why I should. um, I wasn't raised like that, first of all. To me, you can be whatever the color that you are. It doesn't matter because that's not what makes you. And uh, it's, uh, there's uh, someone who said that the only difference that, uh, the only uh, difference that we have, no, the only thing that we have in common, sorry, is our difference. So to me, white, uh, at, this, at this time as we are, we are, we are talking, uh, unfortunately, um, they are the one, the paper, perpetrators of uh, racism and all the things that black people have been uh, have been living for 400 years and more and uh, it's unfortunate that 400 years after we still have the same issues where you have uh, fathers grandfathers um, you know great great grandfathers we're going to be talking about the same thing it needs to stop it does not make sense um, for a white person. And I appreciate for all the allies who are here today for, I would say I'm proud of being black. I'm proud of being who I am, the person I am. And um, I don't know where it started that it was written that the black color is inferior to the white color. I don't know where it's coming from. I really want to know where it's coming from. To me, I've never seen myself as inferior to any white person. I've never compared myself based on my color because as far as I know, I'm a human being and that's all that matters. Being human, having the same privilege, the same rights, and uh, especially uh, when it comes to immigrants. You know, it takes a courage for someone to leave their country to come to another one. And on top of that, from all the things that you leave behind, families, your work, and so many things that were so um, uh, dear to you, you come here, you have to restart, you have to reestablish. And on top of that, 
you you're uh, you you're getting racism to your face well it's a shame um i'm talking here to my to our white allies if among you you have people who are racist white racist or anybody please just tell them that they are wasting their time and they don't know what they are losing because i mean our difference is what makes the world beautiful our difference is what makes the world beautiful we co we cannot all be the same people we have to we have to embrace everybody's culture because that's from what we gain when we are together we gain from that we gain from the culture we gain from the experience we have to live in a world where everybody love each other there's no such thing we have to stop it we have to stop that so to me being white for now it's being it's the person who oppresses my brother my sister or any other black person or any of uh, any other person uh, who uh, who's racialized Okay, I mean, Yvette, thank you for sharing that. I agree with you. The um, one thing I do want us to keep in mind, though, is that I think um, it was not until this year I started studying more about um, white privilege because I also think a lot of our white allies may not even be aware that they have white privilege. I, I never understood that term until recently. And then when I thought about um, the many different little situations that we encounter in things like systemic racism and a lot of other things, you kind of see, but it's just that people may not be aware that they are able to access things only because of the color of the skin, whereas another person cannot. And just because we don't think about it, we don't even understand the layers that that is because you just don't know any better so um with our our allies who are here it's really important for us to understand the definitions of these terms so that it causes a deeper self-reflection in us to say oh I, this is happening to me or just because i'm white nobody's paying attention that's white privilege but if the same um a black person was in that exact situation they would not get away with that just because of the color of the skin. So I think it's important for us to keep that context in mind because that's a big part of the debate that's going on today around Black Lives Matter. And I want to say that the question is a good question, but there's not really a good answer because the census um, considers anyone from Europe or anyone who's got origins from Europe um, the Middle East or North Africa, which doesn't make any sense, but I'll come back to that in a second. Um, or anyone who is uh, Italian, Lebanese, blah, 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 and on like that, right? But that doesn't include Switzerland or places where we know to be predominantly white. But here's, here's why white is more of a construct than it is something that you can actually uh, uh, define. Whiteness is based on how you look. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you why. I have an uncle who looked exactly like Jackie Gleason. When I was a kid, he would take me to places and he would get treated like, the, like, like he was Jackie Gleason. He had access to things that his wife, who was black, darker than I am, um, who other members of our family didn't access, but there was a part of our family, all of them could have passed for white and all of them 
got different treatment. Um, one of them literally passed for white, meaning that she left the family and, um, well, she was white and she, and I'm sure there's, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure there's, there are other stories of black people who looked more white than black and passed for white. Um, so that to me proves that whiteness is not about anything definitive. It's just nearly about how you look. Yeah. And that is actually what the research is pointing at, which makes it sad, but it's actually um, the reality. Lisa, I don't know, maybe we should move on to another, another question, do you think? Yes, that, that, thank you, everyone. That was um, yeah. so illuminating. Um, and I, I, I got so many insights from that and, and helping us to self-reflect and raise our awareness. And that brings us to our next, next topic, which is also actually something I've heard more recently. Uh, I'd been hearing about white privilege for a number of years, not fully understanding it, but certainly I, I got a, a much deeper and greater understanding in the last few weeks, and especially with your, um, your amazing candid discussion around it. Uh, but this is a term I hadn't really heard um, until recently, which is white fragility. So if you could please maybe shed some light on white fragility. Thank you. This is not, I want you guys to know I'm not laughing. I'm laughing because white fragility in the simplest form is when a white person does something to a person of color and that person of color has the courage to say, what you just did made me feel this way, then they defend it by some way. Or there's micro um, aggressions around how the interaction is between white people and I'm gonna say specifically black people, because I can only speak from my experience. Um, I know there's a book about white fragility, but I see it, I see it, um, just like I said, just as simple as um, white people not being able to receive how they may have done something that may be perceived racist, prejudiced, mm -hmm. bigoted, in any one of those in, in any one of those capacities, but especially in the racism. If you say that somebody did something, the first thing they're going to say is, "I'm not racist," and I have said this a million times, so I'm going to say it to this group as well. We need to stop calling each other racist. Racism is a power construct. And so unless you have the power to take something away from me or deny me access to something, then you're not racist. You may be prejudiced. You may have, you may be bigoted because of your experience. Um, so, because I think that that lends to the fragility, right? Nobody wants to be considered racist. Black people are called racist. We're the last people that can be racist. I mean, I just think that we throw that word around and we should use it where it should be, where it's most, um, benefit not beneficial where it's most uh what's the word i'm looking for where it fits there's systemic racism that exists in institutions in our schools in our jail systems in banking the people that create those laws that was a racist racist construct but people you guys you're you are allies so you you're trying to understand you can't be racist but the fragility exists in the space between something that you did unintentionally and somebody's acknowledgement of it and maybe categorizing it a certain way. That's my kind of two cents on that. Mm -hmm. 
Angleden, your chosen explains very well, even better, the definition I gave. Lisa, I'm sorry to tell you, I had to look up definition for this conversation. <laughs> so I want to just share here um, an author's um, definition of white fragility, which explains what Gloden actually just said. So white fragility is defined as the tendency among members of the dominant white cultural group to have a defensive, wounded, angry, or dismissive response to evidence of racism. This term was coined by a white female American author who wrote the book White, white Fragility um, in 2018. White fragility is weaponized defensiveness, weaponized tears, and weaponized hurt feelings, thus make it racial bullying by um, Van der Valk in 2019. White fragility is problematic because it can prevent people of color from wanting to talk about racism with them. White fragility results in people of color having to now comfort white people's upset feelings on top of dealing with the racial trauma. So some examples of white fragility include trying to base a racist issue on class or gender instead. Another one is crying because you didn't understand, you did not intend for it to sound racist. Or getting upset because not all white people are like that. So that's kind of how they're framing white fragility. So it's a lot of like defensiveness towards a behavior that always ends up making the white person feel um, upset for having uh, tried to address the issue. There's two current examples of white fragility, one of which, <laughs> and I feel like this was borderline white fragility and racism because Amy Cooper had the, the power to put Christian Cooper in jail for some, she had the power to harm his life, but also her response to him asking her to put her dog on a leash um, is an example. Like the further, the longer that conversation went on, the, the less it became about her trying to harm him. And the more it became about her fragility about him pointing out the need for her to put her dog on the leash. I mean, I can go on with those examples. <clears throat> Yes, indeed. Um, Christine, would you like to, to weigh in on the conversation at Yvette? I, I think everything was said in that sense. Um, and I think it's, it's really important to have these definitions. So kudos to you, <laughs> Magdalene, for having those definitions because it's always good to have a common ground when we're speaking about something. Uh, but yeah, Glodzin, you've said it all. And um, I would definitely encourage people that are white allies in the call to really be conscious of those different uh, realities that they may be going through and, and to, uh, to choose to rise above it or find ways in order to understand it more and, uh, and, and possibly have these conversations with people that have come to them, you know, hurt by something or exposing it. And if they reacted in a certain way, now that they understand that term, it would be a good thing to kind of revisit it 
um, in their different surroundings. That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Christine. What about you, Yvette? Any examples that you can give around white fragility? Um, I would say the, the word itself, this is my first time really, when I read the question, I said, oh, white fragility. But um, um, I've seen uh, actually the, the, the reactions of uh, just the, the explanation of what you shared. And um, uh, yes, it will be um, people just, as you said, sometimes crying because, oh, I, you know, I, I didn't know. And they, they're putting it then, putting the, 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 the focus now on, on themselves instead of the, you know, uh, the oppression that have been caused. So um, uh, I've, I've been seeing it, but without naming it again. Uh, uh, everything was uh, was said uh, just uh, shared with uh, with the, the explanation that you provided and and with what Claudine and, and Karine ma- mentioned as well yeah one of the really important things Lisa that this conversation or researching for this panel has done for me is that it has helped me better understand terminology and as a mother of three um, four black children at home we were having this discussion and one of the interesting things uh, my daughter said to me, she said, I wish I, she wishes that I had educated her more as a young black woman on those things because she experienced so much of it um, in her young life of being 23. But because there was no real conversation, she didn't learn about it in school, she never knew exactly how to respond. And I think the reason why it's important for us to look at um, the research component of things like that and to really create the opportunities for those conversations, it's because we feel people's reactions, but we don't understand the concept ourselves. And because of that, it becomes a struggle to understand why is someone crying when all I'm trying to do is to, um, why are they defending something? And by understanding the terminology, um, it helps us to put the thing in perspective. And that's one conversation, and I know we have many community leaders um, here. It's one conversation I hope that we can take beyond this panel discussion into our communities by educating people on exactly what those terminologies mean so that when they see them play out, they know how to also respond to them. Okay, thank you so much. Lisa, you want to continue? Yes, uh, thank you. Once again, um, really helping us to think and become more aware uh, of these very important um, issues and topics. So the next question is, and and Glodine, you you kind of mentioned that racism is a construct, um, and we're hearing a a lot of different terms. So just to get a a better understanding, why is there a need to differentiate between racism and systemic uh, racism? Like, what, what are the differences and why is there a need to differentiate between the two terms, please? Well, um, racism, systemic racism is a, um, I believe, I guess the simplest way to define, define it would be, it's like a formula was created that would keep black people in a certain place. So no, here's the better way for me to explain it. Sorry. Um, So after slavery ended, 
there was a 50 year period where um, we had to figure out how to create our own communities. And we did. Most of the historically black colleges and universities were built during the reconstruction era. It was like white people forgot about us and left us alone and we built our own communities and um, thriving communities. And then in the summer of 1919, there was, I, I you guys can go look this up because it's really important. Um, this is a part of history that is not talked about, but there was something called the Red Summer of 1919. It was intentional race, uh, race riot directed at black communities and they burned our black communities, they burned our communities down for no reason other than the fact that during the time um, there was a recession, but black people seem to still be thriving. And, and, you know, I've read this in different places that the perception was that how dare they have a job when I don't have a job? How dare they drive their fancy car in their fancy clothes, live in their fancy community? So across United States, they, from June of 1919 until November of 1919, they targeted certain black communities and burned them down. And then in 1921, because that wasn't enough, they burned down Greenwood, which was kind of our Black Wall Street. Uh, what, followed, what followed that was the Jim Crow era. And the Jim Crow era basically put laws in effect that took us all the way back to slavery, but under legal terms, right? So, and then they made it impossible for us to get back in the game, where we could, where we could buy houses and buy... Um, you know, establish our own businesses, have our own banks. They made it 10 times harder for us to get back in the game because we proved that we could actually survive and thrive on our own, which, which is still baffling to me. If you didn't want us in our community, we build our own community. How come you can just leave us alone? Like, what was that about? Right? So systemic racism to me is um, intended to keep black people, so to speak, in their place, or anyone. You're not allowed to get to a certain level because there's some, and it, and it never fails. We get 10 steps forward and then they change the rules, right? So we had the, the, the laws, the, especially when it comes to um, jailing. Uh, that law has changed so much and specifically so that black people continue to be marginalized and jailed sometimes for years. I just read not too long ago where a guy was in jail for 20 years. He died in jail, never saw court. Like that same thing would never be allowed to happen to a white person. So I think the systemic racism is, like I said, structural and designed to keep us in a certain place. Whereas racism is something that is taught KKK are racist, right? They don't necessarily have the power to stop us from doing anything. However, they do have the power to keep us, to stop us from living, right? Police officers that kill black men and black women for no reason whatsoever are racist because they have the power to take our life. Mm. Mm. I just have to say that hurt me to say right now. I need a moment. That hurt me to say. I can feel the pain, Lorraine, and um, your, your stories that also draw me to other stories. And I remember uh, many years ago, my very first project I worked on in Canada was 
Dominique Dandry. Sorry, go ahead. Um, so right. That was when um, my first exposure to racism and systemic racism at work, and where we um, you you make decisions based on the structure that has been provided for you as a maybe hiring manager, and because of that structure, black people were actually intentionally left out of competitions. And that hurt, like watching that play out, I could not believe that I, I thought people went into competitions because of the um, because of the skills, the education, because of the qualifications. But when you understand that structures are actually deliberately built, this is a systemic racism. So individual racism happens on an individual basis. Like you said, the Kuklas plan, you know, this is individual, no one. But when the, the systems are put in place, to stop people from getting jobs, from accessing opportunities, from getting the, the money to buy a mortgage, from creating policies that actually prevent a black person from moving forward, that level of systemic um, racism is very disruptive to um, progress. It cannot happen. Okay, so at the time that I worked with the Visible Minority Initiative, and even today, I work with a program with visible minority women, most of them um, are colored women. The reason we are doing this project is that Statistics Canada um, research shows that visible minority women are lagging 9% behind in access to the labor market compared to all other groups. And so there are systemic barriers in the way of accessing um, labor market integration and opportunities for them to be able to be themselves. And with allies, which is really important, we have many allies who are champions for visible minority women. And through their help, we are beginning to see how channels are being opened for these women because of the work of allies in opening the door for us. So again, important to note, um, racism is an individual thing. Systemic racism is actually really targeted at a group of people. Um, yeah. If you just give me one minute, I just want to quote something here. Um, systemic racism is when racism is embedded within structures or processes that are carried out by groups with power, such as governments businesses or schools. That's a quote from Collings, 2018. It's important to differentiate between these two terms because racism is covered at an individual level, but systemic racism focuses on the systems that incorporate racism in society and which works to oppress certain groups. This is very important to understand because even though an individual does not consider them to be racist, they must understand the systems in place and the benefits from due to the white privilege. So another example in the Aboriginal community. So if you just look at racism by itself, um, someone might just say, I don't like Aboriginal people. That's just racism. But the systemic racism happens when you start over-policing in the Aboriginal communities, or you start over-policing in the Black communities, then you, you create a, some kind of a, a structure there. 
where you're capturing more people because you're putting more systemic things in place to capture them, whereas you don't do that in the other community. Any other thoughts you'd like to share on this one? I just wanted to add one thing because I think it's also going to answer a question that, that um, anyone on this call may have, which is around um, Black people killing other Black people. And I believe that's the systematic racism that exists in education and the fact that our kids, we, I didn't learn my history until I was an adult. I spent, so I'm going to say this because it's funny. I spent the first 30 years of my life thinking that Black History Month was given to us by white people. Everybody that I know believed that. That was our truth. And then I was in, I went back to school when I was 36 to get my bachelor's degree and um, discovered that uh, Black History Month, this was on my own research. I just, anyway, long story. Um, discovered that Black History Month was created by a black man. Um, <laughs> and why did his name just, I just blanked on his name. Oh my God, it'll come back. But Black History Month was created by a black man. It was Negro History Week initially, and then it became Black History Month because the, the NAACP, right? So the reason I believe that our kids are killing themselves is because they don't feel like they have any value because if you spend 12 years in school and the only thing that you learn about who you are in the world uh, is you were enslaved and you know you didn't have any value because of the way slavery was treated, the way slavery treated um, African people, then why would you care if you killed another black person? So I just wanna say that systemic racism is so precise that it has that type of an impact. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, I'm not gonna say that it's by design that we kill each other, but it's definitely by design that we don't value who we are and we can't love ourselves because there's, we've been taught, we've not learned anything about who we are so that we can love ourselves. And I still have um, on his name. It'll come back and then I'll say it. Uh, I would like to add, uh, thank you, Magdalene, for um, all that you shared. Uh, that is uh, exactly that. I would like to add that uh, systemic racism, really um, the, what, it what it causes, um, especially the mental health uh, aspect that we often don't see. Uh, here, I would like to share about the systemic racism that is made uh, at, the, at the workplace. Where, where you have, uh, first of all, it, it can start with uh, you're an immigrant and you are, um, you're qualified. So for, for example, uh, anybody that fled the country, not because they wanted to, to flee the country, but they, 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 they fled for war because of war and uh, back home, they have a high position. But here, when they come, uh, because uh, the diploma is not recognized, they have to uh, restart over again. So that only causes a lot of, uh, you know, self-esteem uh, diminish, diminution, if I can say that, I don't know if the word is correct. Um, in, the, in the individual, you're a father, maybe of two, three, four kids, but yet here you have to uh, take it on yourself because you need to, uh, you know, make sure that, uh, 
you establish yourself so you cannot exercise your your qualified doctor your qualified lawyer your qualified teacher whatsoever but you arrive here oh boom systematically you cannot uh, you, you you cannot um, uh, uh, function. You can operate or do the job that you've been doing for so many years. Uh, you you have that also uh, w when it comes to. I'm francophone. You you might have heard by my accent, but we have a lot of. Uh, and I know that this is uh, regarding the the school board and all. But the fact that you have some francophone coming from francophone countries, uh, and then here when they come, they have to uh, the the kids. They still have to do some tests before they go into a French school. So that to me also is a, is a kind of uh, um, a systemic racism that needs to stop. And, uh, and, 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 and the last part, um, it's really, uh, I had a, around me so many, I heard so many testimonies of women, especially women, um, who have gone through those phases of being blocked systematically at their workplace. They cannot go higher because they are black. But you know what? These women, they will have either uh, change. They, first, they will start questioning themselves. Am I good enough? Am I, am I smart? Am I, am I not intelligent? You know, all those questions, they, they comes to you. You're a mother. Uh, you know, you, you start questioning yourself. You look at your kids and you're like, Really? So a lot of them have gone into depression. I, I don't know if our institution, they are aware of that, but they should pay attention to that. I'm talking here for Canada. A lot of them, they will take uh, a long, uh, long leave because of depression. A lot of them, they might change career. A lot of them have become uh, their own uh, business owner because they cannot just succeed in, in a place uh, at the government level uh, because of the color of the skin, uh, where they're gonna hire another person who has less qualification than you. And then yet sometimes you will be asked to, uh, to also uh, train that person that they just hired. Oh, well, you have to train her. And you seeing that that's the position that you, uh, you have all the qualification for. You've been working for, I don't know, so many years, but yet you cannot get it. Well, just let us think what it can do to a person, to an individual, a human being, the effects, the, the long lasting effect and really negative effect that it can have impact on someone's life. So uh, it's very important to uh, acknowledge that racism towards the individual and racism, the systemic racism, that is something that definitely needs to stop. And uh, again, I'm very glad for, for all of us being here and discussing these matters. And I just wanna say it's Carter G. Woodson. I can't believe I blanked on his name. Thanks Lisa for the reminder. Yes, indeed. The systemic um, racism, it's a big problem in Canada and I experience it and I see it happening in the workplace. And when um, a Black person's um, ability to take care of his or her family because of systemic, systemic racism happens, this is a blow to self, to self-esteem, to mental health, emotional wellness, and it's spirals into a whole lot of other problems. And the worst part of it, it's like 
sometimes it's not something you feel powerless because the people who are making the decisions that affect your life at so many levels, that decision is all in somebody else's hands. Okay. Karine, would you like to weigh in a little bit on this? Uh, thank you. And uh, I definitely support everything that has been said, so crucial. And I think for allies, it's important to hear these stories and, and to really sit with those stories. And if you have anyone in your surroundings that are Black or are of African descent, you want to sit with them and hear their stories because it's one thing to hear the stories here and to hear, you know, what we have to say, um, you know, as panelists. But for this to be really fruitful, you have to kind of take everything that's been said and, and, and see how it can materialize in your own surroundings and, and be able to, to befriend or, or even just have a black ally, you know what I mean? Like someone that you can actually um, connect with and, and see these things in real time. Because if we want to see change in the next generations, especially when it comes to systemic racism or even racism itself, um, there's a need for the white ally to begin these conversations, sustain these conversations, and those of us that have children um, to sit down with our children and explain to them these things, make sure that they understand the privilege that they have, make sure that they understand that the color of their skin is, you know, giving them these, these privileges, you know, that others may not have. And I, I remember, you know, having this conversation with my husband and he was saying how uh, Michelle Obama was explaining that, you know, um, for example, you know, affirmative action, you know, kind of goes both ways. And she was saying how when she got to Harvard, I believe, um, and, you know, being surrounded with um, all these uh, other individuals that had white privilege and she uh, noticed that she she was brighter than some of them, you know, and, and the some of the reasons why that some of them were there is because of the fact that you know, their parents or their grandparents, you know, had some kind of um, privilege or position that allowed them to be there. And she had to fight to get there. You know, she didn't have anything to, to give her that silver spoon or whatever you call it. And so, but, but having these understandings is really important to, to be able to be, you know, the kind of ally that makes a change, right? I remember I was uh, um, supervising someone at Big Brothers Big Sisters, and uh, she came to me with a document about white privilege. She was white, and she was explaining to me that this is a document that she gives to her children, you know, and, and they were young. Like, and so that they can understand their white privilege, that they can understand, you know, what it is that they're, the system that they're a part of, so that when they get to a place of decision-making, of knowing, you know, that they have this power, that they could use it in the right way. And it starts when they're young, so that it could really change the narrative that we're seeing right now. 
Wow, that's an excellent, excellent point. And I really wish every ally and everybody, now I'm seeing even more important why this work needs to be done. And people need to understand the implications of not understanding things. Because we are, not, we are living at a time in history right now when not knowing is not an excuse for continuing behaviors that are not appropriate. Okay, Lisa, do you want to move on to the next question? Yes, uh, thank you so much for that. And, uh, you know, um, so appreciated. And, and I, I can just imagine how difficult it is to have some of these conversations, having lived through it. So really, honestly, so appreciated. Now, um, the next question, I'm, I'm going to combine a couple of, of things. So there are potential allies that don't speak up for fear of saying the wrong thing or things that are intentionally, unintentionally hurtful to black people. So that's no excuse. And it's happening, unfortunately. So what are some examples of subconscious, unconscious things that white people do uh, or say that impact, impact black people? And also, what are some microaggressions? If you could give us some concrete examples, so that way we can be more aware, um, that would be really appreciated. Thank you. Can I, can I first say that I am a little surprised? I think I had a different perception of the experience of um, Black culture in Canada. And so I'm, I'm surprised because Canada, like, opened its doors to um, slavery during the Underground Railroad. I'm, I'm, so, so give me a moment. I just wanted to acknowledge that because I came into this conversation with a different um, mindset. Um, but one of the things that I think is most annoying, if I don't know you, is when white people use black vernacular as a way of connecting. I'd rather mm. you just connect with me first and then let, let's evolve our relationship. But to call me girlfriend or talk in a certain, ter you know, ter certain slang is, um, I know that the intent may be genuine, but it rings disingenuous because if you don't speak that way, to your regular friends, why would you do that when you come across Black people? Mm -hmm. I could go on, but I'm going to stop there. <laughs> um, I would like uh, to jump in and, and say, uh, to me, there's no such thing like microaggression. Uh, to me, they are all racism. It's, it's racism. And if I have to talk about an experience of... of uh, of that, I would say uh, I often get, uh, I, I think um, when whenever you do, for example, a speech, oh, you spoke so well. Are you, um, did you study this or are you in this? Well, if you, wanted, if you want to say, uh, to compliment someone, just compliment the person by, you know, it really moved me or uh, what you said really empowered me or anything. But adding the, oh, did you study this? It implies that that person, because she's black, cannot have those skills. So it's really, uh, it's that. I, I will also recall when I was um, younger, so I went to private school and uh, you will have oh, you, your father must be rich. You know, things like just the assumption that, again, uh, 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 we cannot afford because we are 
we are black or or, or, or being followed in stores you know just uh, you enter a store and you're like at the moment you enter it's like the eyes are set on you and uh, you feel like okay you just have the person following you and you will turn and say is everything okay oh no 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 it's fine well you know it's just um these type of things uh, that uh, that i can comment on but there are so many so many more and um they are all part of you know we have to call en français on dit on doit appeler un chat un chat so we have to call i don't know if you say we have to call a cat a cat but <laughs> it's racism <laughs> Thank you, Yvette. And I would add uh, one specific thing that sometimes we don't see it as racist, but it is um, when someone says, what country are you from? Because, you know, there's been many generations now of uh, Black Canadians, for example. Um, and so my husband, for example, you know, his parents of, of Haitian descent, but he was born and raised in Montreal. So he's Quebecer, you know, <laughs> he's not from another country. Uh, I was born in Haiti, but I came here as nine months old, right? So, I mean, to assume that I'm from another country, well, I was born in another country, yes, but I spent 43 years here <laughs> in Canada. And so to me, like, I'm Canadian, right? And so it's, it's that, you know, it, it's just to be careful because some people, you know, were not born anywhere else. They were born here in Canada and they are Canadian or same thing in the United, I guess in the United States it's different. And I'm so glad to have Glodine with us today because she brings it such a different perspective. And, and sometimes, you know, with this whole, the blanket of blackness, we kind of forget that there are different realities and we don't have the same reality than, than Americans do. However, we're cousins. And so a lot of what we go through, they go through and vice versa. But I think that, you know, just as an ally, being aware that there are a lot of different forms of blackness, you know, if we want to put it that way, because I, you know, like I said in the beginning, I really feel it's a social construct. So, um, no understanding that people come from, you know, different cultures, maybe from their ancestries, but they could definitely be uh, born and raised in whatever country that they are. And so they identify with that specific country. Like my children, they don't identify with Haiti at all, you know? And, and that's just the reality that they're going through. And so just to keep that in mind. Thank you so much, Karen, for sharing this. I, um, for the sake of our allies, again, I'm sorry, I'm so hooked on definitions today. I hope because I just want to make sure that we're all understanding things from the same perspective. So I do want to provide a definition of microaggressions and what exactly it is. So um, Yoon, in his work in 2020, Microaggressions are defined as basically everyday slights, indignities, put-downs, and insults that members of marginalized groups experience in their day-to-day interaction with individuals who are often unaware that they have engaged in such an offensive or demeaning way. Black people experience these on a regular basis in their personal and work lives, 
and they have a serious impact on a person's mental health and physical health. However, they are not only limited to race and can actually impact all people of marginal groups based on gender, sexual orientation, religion, etc. This is from the work of Yun in 2020. So some of the day-to-day -day microaggressions a black person may experience, if you have already mentioned one, being watched or followed in a store, having white people cross the street when they are walking towards them, that actually happened to me and it was the most humiliating thing. And again, at the time it happened, I didn't quite understand why this white man walked on the other side of the road when I was coming towards him. I just remember feeling quite insulted by that experience. And um, the question that Karen actually just mentioned a, a while ago, being asked, so sometimes repeatedly I've heard people asking someone, where are you from? And if the person said Canada, the person goes, well, where are you from before that? And it becomes a very uncomfortable. Another um, microaggression is being asked, so what do your people think about that? And that can be quite aggravating because now if you're talking to a black person and you're saying, what do your people, what do your black people think about whatever it is? Sometimes black people are referred to saying, you know, words like exotic or chocolate. Not every black person wants to be referred to by with such words. Um, other real examples, and I have heard this happen, where a white person asks a black person, is your hair real? Can I touch your hair? People feel really insulted when people ask them stuff like that. Being told, black people normally do something, but you are different, or you sound so white. Or hearing people mention race while sharing stories that have nothing to do with race. So it's, um, it's for us to just observe our own behaviors on a day-to-day -day basis at work with friends in our communities. Um, to say, what are those small everyday things that we do that actually puts down members of the black community or the marginalized groups, whichever one they are, um, in a very demeaning way? May I pose a question to the panel? Sure. Um, because I, I mean, I, I, I get the microaggressions, but I feel like there's a, there's a slippery, a slippery slope or a fine line between a microaggression and a perceived microaggression. So I have a lot of white friends and I, I spend a lot of time watching how they interact with each other. So I wanted to ask, do you guys watch how white people interact with each other? Because I used to be offended when a white person would say, I speak articulately, but they refer to each other that way. Mm -hmm. It's just a way that, that I've, I've heard too many white people say somebody else white was articulate or even themselves to the point where I can no longer be offended when, they, when I hear them say that because I get it. Articulate is the ability to communicate effectively. And if you have the ability to do that, no matter what culture you're from, you are articulate. The other thing I noticed is I, I used to go to um, parties where I'd be like one of very few black people. And when, it first, when I first went to my first party, uh, one of the white people asked me how I knew the host. And I felt like, what difference does it make? What are you trying to say, that I don't belong here? Like, I got an attitude. Um, 
but then I, you know, that wasn't the, the last white party I went to. And then I started to notice, no, that's how you start a conversation, dum-dum. They ask, <laughs> how do you know the host? And then you start a conversation. Cause, and typically, because I meet people in random places, I, you know, will have met the person in the grocery store line or, you know, standing at the, at the I don't know, some random place, like I said. So I want to ask you ladies, do you have white friends? Do you watch how they interact with each other? Because I think the best way for us to minimize a lot of these microaggressions is to really not take them personally. Like, like Maya Angelou said once, if you don't pick it up, you don't have to put it back down. So if you don't, if you know, just as much as we want them to understand us, I think that we also need to understand how white people interact with each other so that we don't walk away feeling some kind of way when it wasn't intended, right? I think teachable moments are teachable moments when they actually um, impact us in a way that might be outside of how they interact with each other. I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, If I can interject, uh, I totally agree (laughs) with you, Claudine. And, uh, you know, my experience, you know, even growing up, I always had the group of white friends and the group of black friends. You know, I've always been sort of a citizen of the world and just getting along with everybody and just, and for me, even the concept of racism was not a real concept to me because I never really experienced it, to be very honest. Or if I did, I did not focus on it or it was not something that was glaring to me, you know? Um, and so I think you're, you, you make a good point because sometimes what happens is us because we're so used to being around our own kind, so to speak, you know, whether it's white or whether it's black, because it goes both ways, you know, like you could have uh, even the the person that comes, you know, to you and say girlfriend or whatever. And that's actually an American thing, you know, like it's it's a black American thing, right? So even amongst us who are not American, we'll be like, oh, girlfriend and stuff like, we'll start talking American, you know, as if we're American, but we're Americanized. That's the reality. We all are Americanized. And so but yes, being exposed to how other people interact and being in an environment that is not your own, so to speak, is super, super important. And uh, I think that's a very valid point that you bring. And, and even my husband and I, you know, we had such different experiences growing up. He grew up in Montreal, where it's fully black area, um, you know, b- 99% of the people in high school were black. Principal was black. Most of the staff were black. And so, you know, he kind of had to get out of that, you know, mentality and and come to a place of, of better understanding that citizen of the world type of mentality. So when we were raising our children, it was kind of a talk that we had to have, you know, and say, okay, yes, we want to educate them about, you know, blackness and racism and all those things, but you don't want to raise them with the mentality that, oh, I'm inferior. I'm going to be, you know, living these things. Like there's no getting around it and all that kind of stuff because we can have very total, diff- totally different experiences. And so in our household, it was a conversation that we needed to have so that our children can grow up with that mentality of being citizens of the world without, you know, putting aside the fact that, yes, you will, you know, be discriminated against, you know, possibly because of the color of your skin. So it starts with conversations, and I totally agree with you. 
Yeah, I agree with you too, Karen, and I agree with you, um, Jordan. It's really important to have those, um, when you observe the relationships, because with my white friends, I have um, conversations, and like you realize, I also realize that a lot of things are conversation starters. People don't necessarily say things to create a problem. The, the, common, the most common one I've come across is, where are you from? And depending on who you talk to, um, some people could feel really insulted by that question. Other people can see it um, really as a way to start a conversation and to get to know a person better, which I think for the most part, that's what people intend to start the conversation and to get to know a person better. So I agree with you, Gloria, um, in terms of being observant and watching what's happening with your other white friends and intuitive at all as, as well to decide is that something you need to pick up or is it something you need to leave behind because we don't have to pick every battle you know and we don't have to create situations where we become on the battleground with every you know thing that's said to us but Loren, i want to just bring uh um uh i like that from you christine you have here, assume positive intent is one of my mantras. It, all, it helps me keep an open mind and give people a chance. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing. Assume positive intent. Um, I also think, um, this is for Gloden, from the American perspective and Canadian perspective. So my partner is from America, Black American. And I, coming to Canada, it was a real different thing. I felt that he was constantly fighting and I couldn't understand why. Like everything, some, every time someone said something, half the time they interpreted it as offensive. And having lived in Canada, I kept saying, I don't think the person meant it that way. I think they're just trying to get to know you. But over time, I think there's a different experience that American, Af Black Americans have, I don't know, compared to my own experience of the day, which is a little bit more assertive, a little bit more aggressive. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything on that, because I felt it was a constant fight a lot of the times um, over things that were not ill-intentioned. Um, <laughs> I don't <laughs> I think it depends on where where did he come from? Where did he, where was where was he living? Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Oh, okay. So he went from he went from his people to not his people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so that experience in New York is completely different, right? I grew up in in most of my life in California. Um, and my mom exposed me to to white people when I was a kid, like two years old, she had friends from all over. So my experience, that's why I'm saying I, a lot of things that people get offended by, um, I am not offended by because I've had the experience of seeing how white people engage with each other. Now there's a tone, let me just be clear on this. There is a tone that when someone is trying to make you feel other or less than, there's a tone that they use. And it's sometimes it's a softer, or, or, or softer than just being blatant, right? But it's it's not a conversational tone. So he may have been picking up on on the un you know Canadians speak differently too, right? So you've got dialect. It's a slight dialect difference. But he he went from being in his in his black world in his comfortable space to a space where people you know and and when you're out in the world, you recognize that 
um, white people don't have the, the fear of asking you a question that you wouldn't ask each other. Like, yeah. I would never say to another Black person, you're articulate. Although I grew up being teased for sounding like a white girl. But my mother told me that there's no such thing as talking white. You speak the King's English. It's what everybody learns. And she wouldn't let me speak in slang. I got in trouble if I spoke in slang. But um, um, my, my point was that it, it's, it's, it's so much work to be Black. If everyone on this call has not recognized that being Black is not something that you take off at the end of the day and put back on in the morning. There is no break from it. Wherever you go, wherever you are, depending on who you encounter, you are going to be reminded of your Blackness. And so as much as I want the white allies to help us move forward, I also want to just speak to my sisters and say that we have to, we have to not be burdened with that. I am working really hard. I'm 52 years old. It finally took me this long to get to a point where I am not going to be constantly reminded of my Blackness. And that just means sometimes letting it roll off your back. My mother used to say, let it roll off your back like duck off of water. I mean, like water off a duck's back. <laughs> but, and it's not easy. I know it's not easy, but sometimes when people are intending to make you feel a certain way and you don't buy into it, it diffuses it immediately. So I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah, go ahead. No, I couldn't agree more uh, with what uh, Claudine you just said about uh, you know not letting yourself uh, burdened by uh, being black because again uh, we are all human being and we don't have to uh, uh, put ourselves pressure on um, on any type of uh, you know injustice. We have to recognize it. It's very important to recognize it and definitely to fight against it, that for sure, but not putting the pressure on, on, on yourself and uh, just living your life because it's so important. And uh, again, we've been sharing here about uh, the where, where are you from? Well, uh, it's true that that's a question that is very uh, often asked and I, I often look at my daughters and uh, one, one, of, uh, one, of the, uh, one of them, she always say, mommy, I'm Canadian. And she wouldn't, and she is Canadian because she was born here in Canada, and she doesn't know otherwise. She knows the, she knows our roots uh, for sure, uh, the the country of origins and etc. But she doesn't identify herself as you know anything else. So uh, um, we just have to uh, to make sure that the world we live in that we create. Uh, the, the positive impact in this world because uh, we are all here and uh, I, I think that all the, the people who joined today uh, you are uh, we are here for a purpose and and I hope that at the end of this uh, session that we will we will be uh, different from what we've learned and uh, we will be impacting positively or our community wherever we are that it is here in Canada or in America or elsewhere. Thank you so much, Yvette. <laughs> okay, Lisa, do you want to look at the last question around the um, what can people do for Black to be an ally? Yes, yes, um, th and thank you again. I'm, you know, we're, I'm sure I, I speak for a lot of us here. We're just taking it all in, and you're answering so many questions as we go. Um, mm -hmm. Now, th there are just a couple of 
I just want to combine a question. The first one is sometimes white people think they're being genuinely inclusive when they say things like, you know, well, all lives matter or, you know, we're all the same color on the inside or, you know, things like that. And then, and then, you know, the, the reactions we get, uh, sometimes it's, it's a bit confusing in terms of, so please, if you can maybe give a little bit more insight into why it's important to say Black Lives Matter. Um, and the other part, too, is what other advice do you have uh, for people who want to be, uh, you know, respectful allies who honor Black lives? Thank you. So um, this is a sore subject with me, which is why I'm going to say something right now. Um, I get what it, I get what people think they mean when they say all lives matter, but but let's just take let's take the color of our skin off of it. Let's take everybody's color of the skin off of it except for black people, right? And think about the fact that in addition to our years of history having been enslaved and treated the way we were treated, um, that when you think about policing, and mm -hmm. I said this before somewhere. Um, that police are public servants and they're served to honor, uh, serve and protect the people in the community. And so would it be okay if the police were killing other people, mm. not black people, and killing, black, and killing them in the same way they kill black people without any thought of consciousness whatsoever? Somebody is running away from you and it's okay to shoot them in the back because you felt like you were in harm. So when you say all lives matter, that's to, to say that, because um, we know all lives matter. I'm the first one to make sure that's clear. I know all lives matter. But until black lives are considered equal to every other life, then black lives have to matter. Because black, and, and, I, and I mean black lives matter, I say black lives matter to black people because we're killing each other too. And, but that should not take away from the mm -hmm. fact that the, the, that police and um, what's the thing that people here have um, the, the right to carry, where somebody like George Zimmerman can shoot a, a Trayvon Martin because he has the right to do so. Until that stops, Black lives have to matter. Um, I would like to add to that. Um, again, when, we, may, when uh, we mean Black lives matter, it's, it does not mean that white life or any other lives does not matter. It's just to put the focus that the black lives are at risk. And here, Claudine, she shared about the policing. And um, we've all seen uh, what, what created, uh, which I'm calling, if I can say, a revolution, uh, the fact, the, the death of George Floyd uh, in America on, on, on May 25th. Uh, we've all seen how... Um, disturbing it was uh, you know it was uh that when it happened I, I i just didn't know what to say what to think should i be angry should i be uh should i you know it was so many type of emotions at the same time and these have been happening way too long way too much way too often and at a moment when the Black Lives Matter movement started, it, it was to take a stand and to say, stop, stop, that cannot continue. Because Black Lives Matter just as the, the lives of other matters. 
And it was to emphasize on that so that a focus can be on that and people to understand that there is a problem, there is an issue, a systemic problem against the black people. So uh, uh, a white allies, you have to understand that it's not about that the other lives does not matter. No, it's just to identify, focus on uh, eliminating, you know, um, saving the lives of the black people because we do matter just like anybody else. That's wonderful, Yvette. I think you have um, given a very clear explanation here for all of us. And just to add to that, I want to say that um, saying that all lives matter, you're not acknowledging different struggles that Black people face and why the Black community needs to be reminded that Black lives matter. Black lives matter is really a pro-movement. It is by no means an anti-white or an anti-any race movement. It is implied that all lives matter, but the movement is a reminder that at this point in our history, we need to focus on Black lives because Black lives are in more serious danger. And I think you just need to look at the statistics, um, what has happened in the last few years, to understand that that disadvantage that people have it's like the same thing for cancer. Choosing to say all lives matter is the equivalent of going on a match for breast cancer and saying all cancer matters. We know that all cancer matters, mm -hmm. but maybe the march is focusing on breast cancer right now because breast cancer is in more serious need of health, whatever it is. So again, we are not saying that all lives don't matter. We know that we acknowledge that, but black lives are in danger because of the incidents that the world has experienced in the last two years. Well, not just the last two years, for a long time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, um, Karin, any more for you on that question? No, I think everyone said it perfectly, so I don't have anything to add at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the, how do we respond to people? Um, what's the appropriate response in the case that an ally messes up and says the wrong thing? Um, and if there's anger directed towards them, what can that ally do? Because you know we have great allies that are not badly intended, with no bad intention, but what will be the appropriate response if they said something which was awkward, which was not the right thing? Um, any thoughts, suggestions from our panelists? Uh, just to clarify, are we asking what's the appropriate response from the person receiving on the receiving end or um, yeah, by the ally. So the ally messes up mm -hmm. and says the wrong thing, which really was not intended. So how, sh and how should that ally respond to the person who's feeling offended? Right. I think it goes back to the discussion we had about white fragility, just understanding that, you know, whatever reaction that they get um, has to kind of be accepted, even if um, it could be offensive or it could be, as long as, you know, there's no physical harm happening. And 
Um, because, you know, whatever anger that comes out at them, um, they need to understand that it's not necessarily due to their person, but it's due to, you know, what they've said. And so just, you know, being patient and, and, uh, try to not react to emotionally to it, um, have like a, just a perspective, objective perspective and, and be honest and have conversations that, that are honest and, and own it, own it as well. It's, it's really important to own that behavior, even if it wasn't intended harmfully or even if it, you know, the intent was good in their eyes, but acknowledging that that is not how it was perceived or received is really important. And then, you know, just having the emotional intelligence to deal with their own emotions and also um, sit with the emotion of the other person um, and, and go from there. That would be my, my recommendation. Thank you so much, Karen. And I've posted some um, examples of appropriate responses in the chat box, like, you know, just apologizing. I'm sorry. I'll try harder moving forward. I didn't understand. I'll educate myself. Even asking, do you have any literature, anything on this topic that I can read about? Um, saying that, you know, thank you for correcting me. I did not realize it in, you know, that way. I can correct it in the future. Letting them know it's a new topic for you. Um, and that you will find better resources to understand. So the main advice here is not to end up becoming more defensive yourself, because obviously someone feels that you have done something wrong. Um, it's really letting down your defenses, so it gives an opportunity to build the relationship. Glodan, anything from you? Uh, I would just add one one thing is. Um... See, I, I, I always feel communication is two ways, right? So I got I to gotta deal with, the, with our side of the, the, the coin as well, because I, I like to say that, you know, if you communicate from a place of love, if someone says something to, if a white ally says something to me that I consider to be um, offsides, or I think that I'm not going to have a problem with it, but if they said it to another black person, they might get a tongue lashing, then I would say to them, can I ask you a, can I ask you to really think about what you just said? When you ask somebody to think about what they just said, then they have to, they have to deal with, okay, why is she asking me to do that? And then we can have a different conversation, right? And we can unpack what you said so that you're more aware the next time you go to say something. What I'll say to the, the another thing I want to say to the allies is, if you're not sure what you're about to say, how it's going to land, then I would just preface what I'm about to say with, I don't, mean, I don't mean any harm by what I'm about to say, but I'm trying to understand, or whatever that is, so that it doesn't land the wrong way to the person that you're speaking to. And then you don't have to apologize on the back end, and you also open an opportunity for you to have a real conversation. <clears throat> Excellent. That's an excellent point. Um, and adding to that piece on love that you spoke about, you know, I'm a big supporter of developing relationships with people and relationships from a very soulful space. And it does not matter um, race or religion, because I think we are all in this world to create something beautiful, to learn from each other, and to continue to advance um, the, the cause, the progress. 
So um, I also think another good tip for allies is to build relationships in small and big ways that it doesn't always have to be a big conversation that goes around this, but you know, just spending time with people and really enjoying and understanding them and giving space to talk and to listen because nothing beats real friendships. And all of us have, I'm sure everyone sitting in this room have fantastic friends who are white people and we have fantastic friends who are black people. And I know from some of my white friends, nothing can come between us because we the relationship is so solid that even if they said something to me, I don't have to take everything as an offense. But it's because time has been has been taken to develop a relationship um, where there's common understanding and a lot of things. Okay, so developing friendships in, is is really really important. Yvette, would you like to add on to any any more examples? Um, what was shared is really uh, what uh, what I also wanted to uh, to share. It's very important to. Um, just uh, first be honest, you know, just to um, to be honest and uh, mention just as Claudine said, uh, like, you know, um, I, I, I don't mean wrong and um, and do not take the, the do not take the offense. Um, like do not bring out more um, more anger into that or so it's really about uh, creating that space, the, communi the, the communication, because when we speak, when we share, like that's when we understand each other. It's very important to, uh, you know, for someone to express themselves. Uh, I recall um, some years ago, it was a group of young people. So young, young, young black people, um, they were approached by, um, by white white person and uh, because of you know just the, the the experience of being black and all the racism and etc so their reaction uh when they are approached by a white person is very um just like aggressive uh in a sense that they, they just protect themselves so they don't they don't want to have any uh sympathetic uh, relationship but uh, at that moment, the person who actually uh, created the communication was the white person by telling them, look, I don't mean to arm anybody. I don't mean to, um, um, to, um, to cause any trouble here, but I just want to understand why you are re reacting like that towards me. And it just opened up a full conversation and the youth, they started to explain what they experienced and et cetera. And, and those individuals uh, later on, they just become the best, uh, you know, the, the, the best buddies or, and, and started something together. So communication is very important. And uh, what we are doing today, what Lisa, you, the space that you created uh, is, is just such a beautiful example of what white allies should be doing and uh, and can be doing, uh, you know, when when uh, when they're asking uh, after the march, a lot of uh, white allies were asking, "What can I do? What uh, uh, I would like to help?" and etc. Well, creating the space, uh, providing a space, uh, just like we did today, is such a great example of that. Thank you. 
Oh, that's a wonderful event. And um, I want to add one more point to that. And I think um, understanding now what white privilege is, and it's not something that you go and buy somewhere, it's just the natural, just the color of your skin that gives you that. Understanding that, I think that our allies can help us to amplify the voices, the suppressed voices of people um, using both digital and in-person um, te technology as well. Because sometimes by you just being able to make a statement and to use your privilege to give access to others, to be a voice for others, to say that this is wrong, to say that I understand, to say that give me more information, this is how we are going to change the dynamics in the future. But being silent, in my opinion, is not an option. We cannot be allies when we remain silent on issues that affect other human beings because we refuse to take a stand. So when say, you see that things go wrong, make a choice to express your dissatisfaction, especially to those who have influence in making changes in our societies. Okay, over to you, Lisa. Wow, uh, thank you. Thank you all for being so open and sharing your experiences with us, your wisdom. Um, you know, know that you've made a huge difference uh, for me and, and I'm sure for a lot of people in the call and, and the participants in, in understanding some of these um, challenging concepts and how we need to step up. We, we can't be silent anymore. We can't mm -hmm. pretend it's not happening. Uh, and and I, I can commit that I'm going to use my white privilege now that I understand better what it means. I'm going to use it and I'm going to use it however I can. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really happy with the fact that we created this space and we listened and, and I'm sure you've answered a lot of questions. Honestly, uh, I, you know, I, I just heartfelt thanks. Thank you very much. A big thank you to our Little Talk listeners for tuning into today's show. Please share with friends and colleagues who care about leadership and what is happening in our workplaces. If you'd like to keep this conversation going, please go to lightyourleadership.com to book a discovery call. While you're there, be sure to grab your copy of Light a Fire in Their Hearts, The Truth About Leadership. We wish you an excellent rest of the week. And until next time, remember to light your leadership because building authentic business relationships will help you to love your life as a leader.